If you would keep your Bible open to 1 Peter chapter 1, or your bulletin is fine. I believe we may have some black, small black Bibles back there on the table. Um, if you need one, if you don't have a Bible, take one of those home with you. Uh, or come see me and I'll get you one. Uh, even if, or if you have a Bible and you're, you're saying, you know, I have one, but I don't, I don't understand this version, this, how it's written. Um, I'll get you one that makes sense. Yeah. Let's pray. God of all grace, what a great name for you. God of all grace. That grace that um, we talked about last week, that is the free gift um, of your undeserved and unearned favor towards sinners like us. That you would turn your face toward us that you would smile upon us as we sang this morning. That Jesus, you would experience the turning away of the face of your Father so that we might experience the turning of his face in favor toward us. Amazing grace. So God of all grace, would you come by your spirit and take your word um, and just massage it into our hearts, beat it into our heads so that we know the God to whom we have entrusted our souls. And even when we can't hang on to you, would you remind us that your grace promises that you're holding on to us. Do this in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You know, if if I were to pick a verse out of 1 Peter that summarizes 1 Peter, as far as I understand it, it would be 1 Peter chapter 4, Verse 19. If you have a Bible, you can turn there and look at it, but I'm going to read it to you. First Peter 4.19. This, I think, is a beautiful summary. Uh, in fact, it comes at the end of a section in which Peter is talking to everyone in these churches to whom he sent this letter. And then in chapter 5, he turns and he talks to the elders. So at the end of this section in First Peter, four chapters where he's addressed everyone in the churches. He says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All of 1 Peter is packed into that verse. Therefore, let those who suffer 1 Peter is written to a people who are obviously suffering. We talked about that last week. Suffering from outside, uh, external circumstances and, and external persecution. But also suffering from the internal battle of a me-first heart that 
wages war against us. Um, and the attack of the lion, Satan, who, roar, who roams around roaring, seeking someone to, to devour. Let those who suffer according to God's will. There are those who will preach to you today that it's never God's will for you to suffer. That you just got to have enough faith. Those who suffer according to God's will. Tell them to argue with Peter. Let those who suffer according to God's will, what? What do I do while I'm suffering? First of all, I submit to God's will, but, but he says, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So while I'm suffering, according to God's will, I, I trust him with my soul. I trust him with my body. I trust him with all of me while doing good. I keep, I keep obeying Jesus. I keep doing what he's called me to do. I keep loving God and loving others in the midst of my suffering while I'm entrusting my soul to him. I can do that because he's a faithful creator. He not only created me, but he was faithful to redeem me. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I would recommend memorizing that. And as I thought about that, as I'm still trying to introduce 1 Peter to you, I thought, okay, I want to open this sermon by telling you a story about someone who exemplifies this verse. So I was trying to think, so what, what great hero from church history could I tell you their story and let it be a portrait of this, of this verse? Or maybe, maybe I could find a more current uh, person, uh, someone whose name you might recognize, you know, a Christian celebrity, tell their story in a way that summarizes this verse. But I have to be honest with you, and you're going to have to just forgive me and indulge me this moment to, to do this, but every time I read that verse, the Christian that I think of it's my wife. And she is reluctant to let me do this. <laughs> um, but I thought, rather than tell you about some great person in the past, and I'll tell you those kind of stories, and rather than tell you about some great celebrity Christian now that we all know, let's just talk about a real person. Christine... exemplifies this verse, not perfectly. She has suffered according to God's will. And, I, and I'll tell you a little bit about her story so that you can connect your story. You all, you all have done these things. You've all suffered according to God's will 
and entrusted yourself to your faithful creator while doing good. But as I tell you a little bit about how she's done that, think about your own life. She came from a broken home. Parents divorced when she was four. Moved away from the city where her dad lives when she was eight, so she only saw him on the summers. She has suffered chronic pain for most of her life, particularly since we got married. Headaches, fibromyalgia, you wouldn't know it, but she's always in pain. You've heard me tell the story of 20 years ago when she was burned, 38% of her body was burned in a grease fire. A couple of years ago, she's experienced what many of you have when she lost her dad. Um, she's experienced unanswered prayers. You would expect that a woman who's always in pain to be crying out to God for healing, and she has, constantly. But not quite answered in the way that she would like them to be. She's experienced shattered dreams, or maybe delayed dreams. Um, She wanted to be a mom from the day we got married, but it was eight years before we had the twins. So that dream was delayed. And I could go on and on. There's parts of her story that I'm not free to share, but she has suffered according to God's will. But she has for years and still does entrust herself to the faithful to her faithful creator while doing good um, I tried to think about how do I how can I describe for you what that looks like in her life um, just this week our oldest daughter Abby was uh, who has been experiencing chronic headaches and pain and fatigue like her mom um, we finally were able to get her to a rheumatologist, and she too has fibromyalgia. If you don't know what that is, look it up, but it's, it's painful, all over painful. Abby said that she feels 20 years older than she is. And so Christine wept with her about the prospects of unless God heals her, and we pray that he will. But the prospects of living a life of chronic pain. And so, in their conversations, as Abby was realizing that she may live a life of pain, she was asking her mom, how do you do this? And so with Christine's reluctant permission, let me just read you a text she sent to her daughter. She said, if you allow the pain to drive you to dependence on God rather than bitterness, you will have a richer depth in your relationship with him and other people, which you already have, she said, but it will be deeper. She said, it's easy to become bitter about life's hurts, 
You have to keep asking God to use your pain for His glory and the world's good. Christine said, for years I felt like pain would hold me back from doing all the important things I was supposed to be doing for God. But lying in bed with a migraine one day, he brought that song, Here I am to worship. He brought that song to mind. And he convinced me that that's the important thing that I was called to do with my life. Worship him. And so whether I'm singing in church, driving my car, sitting at my desk, consoling a hormonal teenage daughter, cooking dinner, or lying in bed in excruciating pain, she did not include dealing with Jimmy, I don't know. Um, All of those things are my spiritual acts of worship, all of them. If I do them with an attitude of gratefulness and surrender, he receives it all as our offering of worship. So that's what it's like to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good in the midst of your suffering. Now, you know, am I holding her up as some poster child for Christianity? No, she's a sinner. She'll be the first to tell you that, and then I and the children can confirm it for you. But she's a regular, normal sinner. But Jesus is doing something in her, in the midst of her pain. So that verse describes her. But you know what? Even better than that, it describes Jesus. Jesus suffered according to God's will. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father. And then he lived to do good to lay down his life, to love God and to love others. And so when Peter is calling us to live this kind of life, he's calling us to live the life of Jesus because Jesus has done it for us and will do it in us and through us. This is what it means to be called to live as elect exiles. And if we're going to live the real life of trusting God and doing good while we suffer, then we're going to need the real grace of God to do it. And that's why we need 1 Peter. Remember last week I said that, thankfully, Peter Peter told us why he wrote this letter in chapter 5, verse 12. He said, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this everything I've said so far, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So in order to live that kind of life of suffering and entrusting your soul to God while doing good, you're going to have to stand firm in the true grace of God. And so Peter wrote this letter to declare God's grace in Jesus to us and to exhort us to live like Jesus in the places he's put us. Sinclair Ferguson said, says there's a, there's a very clear grammar in the gospel. Forgive me, all of you who don't like grammar lessons, but this is a little grammar lesson. Um, he says, we need to learn that the grammar of the gospel has its appropriate mood. So, if you've 
been in a, a grammar class before, you, you've heard about the, the moods and the tenses and, the, and all these things. But um, there's what's called an indicative mood and an imperative mood. An indicative mood, he says, is saying these are the things that are true. And so they're just statements of fact. That's the indicative mood. The imperative mood is saying these are the things you need to do. So they're commands. We are very familiar with imperatives. Clean your room. Stop that. Turn off the TV. But Ferguson says, in the gospel, the structure of the grammar is always that the indicative, the things that are true, always give rise to the imperative, the things that we are to do. So he says, the great gospel imperatives to holiness are rooted in the indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of those imperatives, those commands. For the apostles... The indicatives were always more powerful than the imperatives in gospel preaching. And so what Peter is doing is he's declaring to us the indicatives, the facts. These are the things that are true. And then he's exhorting us with the imperatives. These are the things you should do. That's what he said. I've been exhorting and declaring this is the true grace of God. Uh, Pastor Matt Chandler tells preachers, he says, be careful to preach the do's and don'ts of Scripture in the shadow of the crosses done. And so that's what the apostles do. That's what Peter's doing. He's preaching to us the do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do this, live this way. But he's doing it in the shadow of the done of the cross. In the shadow of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so, and this is, this is how all the New Testament letters tend to roll out. Um, there's the indicatives. Again, the completed actions of Jesus for us, the imperatives, the commands of Jesus to us. Or let's say the declarations of what the gospel says is true and the exhortations of what the gospel sends us to do. This is what Peter said is the purpose of his letter. And so that's what he does. He declares to us what in his love God has done for us, to us, and in us because of Jesus. So that he can then turn and exhort us to live what God wants to do through us because of Jesus. The Apostle John did the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. He said, we love because he first loved us. We do because of what he's already done. And folks, we've got to make sure, we've got to make sure that we don't get those turned around. That we do because of an independence on what Jesus has done. We don't do to get Jesus to do for us. We do because of what he's already done for us. If 
1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. We will only be able to obey the command of Jesus to love God and others when we receive and rest in the love God shows us through the completed actions of Jesus for us. Jack Miller said it this way. Fulfill your calling. You want to know what your calling is? Fulfill your calling by loving and loving and loving. You are called by God the Father to wake up to the awareness of the immeasurable love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord and then to walk in that love as you relate to others. Wake up to the love that God has for you in Jesus and then walk it out in your relationships with others. So I want to encourage you, read through 1 Peter this week. It's, he says it's brief. It's not as brief as I think he thought it was, but... It's just five chapters. Read through 1 Peter and look for, look for his declarations, those indicatives. Look for the things that he says God has done in Jesus for us, to us, in us. And then also look for the imperatives, the exhortations, those things that we are to do because of what Jesus has done. And you'll see it. There's a pattern. He goes back and forth, back and forth. So, as we move now, now I want to, that's the end of the letter. Now I want to go all the way back to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 1. He's writing to the elect exiles. And when he calls us elect exiles, He's telling us whose we are and who we are. Whose we are and who we are because of God's grace. And so, throughout this letter, he's going to keep doing that. He starts with just that little phrase, elect exiles. But throughout the letter, he's going to keep declaring to us whose we are and who we are because of God's grace. But then he's also going to keep exhorting us to live according to to whose we are and who we are by God's grace. And so this is how he begins his letter. We are elect exiles. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he lists those five places which we said last week. Those are all now in what we call Turkey. Um, The word elect describes who we are in relationship to God. Exile describes who we are in relationship to the world. And both of those terms, elect and exile, come from God's description of God's people throughout history. In fact, the whole story of the Bible traces, you can trace this theme of exile all the way through. For example, Adam and Eve, they lived in paradise. But because of their sin, they were exiled. They were kicked out. And if you read Genesis and you follow the story from Genesis 3 where they were exiled and kicked out all the way to Genesis 11, where does it end up? With a group of sinners building a tower in a place called Babel. They were exiled to Babylon. And so the whole story of the Bible is about God bringing his exiles out of Babylon to his promised land. Babylon represents 
the seat of worldly, uh, sinful, against God power and thought. Then come uh, Abraham and Sarah. Guess where they lived before God called them to go to the promised land? Ur of the Chaldees. Babylon. That's where they lived. They lived in Babylon. God chose them out of all the people that lived in Babylon. He chose Abram and Sarai to come out of Babylon and go to the promised land. And so Hebrews 11 describes them as strangers and exiles. And then the children of Israel under Moses. They were living as foreigners or exiles in Egypt. And God called them out and had them sojourn to the promised land. And when he did that, uh, the question came, so are we special? Is that why you chose us? And this is what uh, God said to the people who were under Moses' leadership. He said, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he he could have said this to Abraham and Sarah too. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So this theme of chosen travelers, picked out pilgrims, elect exiles, was already known by God's people. But the place where it comes into uh, very clear, sharp technicolor is when God's people were exiled from their land to Babylon. And so then we have the story Um, with Nehemiah and Ezra, we have the story of a remnant of God's people who were chosen to move back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. So this theme of exiled sojourners moving from Babylon to the promised land is all throughout Scripture, and that's the theme that Peter picks up because we are the people of God. The church is the people of God. And we are elect exiles. At the very end of his letter, Peter says, uh, he's just sending greetings from people, and he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And you wonder, some scholars have wondered, is that his wife? No, that doesn't make sense. Is it uh, some other lady? And what they've concluded is he's talking about the church. She, the church, here where I am, sends you her greetings. Peter's not in Babylon. Babylon doesn't, as a nation, doesn't exist anymore. He's talking about Rome. Rome became the, the, uh, the symbol of Babylon the Great, this place where, um, Rebellion against God was uh, powerful and and strong. So he's saying that the church is moving from Babylon to promised land. 
And this church over here, who is in Rome, which is Babylon personified, they send you their greetings because we're all in this together. And so Peter encourages them that they are elect exiles, picked out pilgrims. So we'll talk more about this. We'll unpack this more, but let me just stay with 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 2. Quickly, exiles, again, that's who we are in, relation to the, in relationship to the world. We're foreigners, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims. We are citizens of God's kingdom, uh, of the kingdom of God's beloved Son, who live among a people who are still under the sway of the kingdom of darkness. That's how Paul described it, that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So what that means is, though we all look, we look just like everybody else who lives up here on the mountain, um, but, it, but we're citizens of a different kingdom. And what that means is the world, the world should look at us and see the life and love of Jesus in the way we live in love, and they should say to us, you ain't from around here, are you? We're exiles. But what he focuses on in verse 2, and this is what I'll, I'll finish with, he unpacks what it means to be the elect exiles. This is who we are in relationship to God. We're his And in order for us to live out whom we are as exiles, we have to first know whose we are. And so he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ Jesus and sprinkling with his blood. What does all that mean? Well, look at it real quick. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we are elect, we are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this does not mean that God looked down the corridors of time and saw that you chose him, so he, he chose you. That's not what the word means. The word means the same thing here as it does in Romans 8, 28 and 29, where it says that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus. It, it's a personal term. It means that he... Uh, one way you could say is that he foreloved us. He loved us beforehand. Not just that he knew that we were down there, but that he looked down there and he picked us out because of his love. And that's exactly what he said about what we just read about uh, God's people throughout history. It says, the Lord set his love on you and chose you. That's what it said in Deuteronomy. So, we are lovingly chosen by grace, not because of anything we could earn or deserve. So, we're lovingly chosen by the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. And this is not talking about sanctification like growing in Jesus kind of sanctification. It literally just means we're set apart by the Spirit. So, the Father lovingly chose us, the Spirit comes and says, 
I'm going to set apart those the Father has lovingly chosen for a purpose as his people. And the next part tells us what that purpose is, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So God has looked down the corridor of time and lovingly chosen you to be set apart, set apart by the Spirit so the Spirit would bring you to Jesus so that you may be sprinkled with his blood and live in obedience to him. Folks, the whole Trinity is involved in choosing you to be his exile. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is grace that we need to know and live and believe in order to live as exiles. You've got to know that the entire three-in-one God went to work so that you could be his. I love how Sinclair Ferguson wraps this up. Listen to what he says. Woven into the warp and woof of the New Testament's exposition of what it means for us to be holy, in other words, here's, here's all the apostles are teaching us what it means to be holy, and woven into that is the great groundwork that this self-existent, three times holy, triune God has in himself, by himself, and for himself, committed himself and all three persons of his being to bringing about the holiness of his own people. This is the Father's purpose, the Son's purchase, and the Spirit's ministry. Friends, if you're going to make it in your real life as an exile, you've got to know that the whole Trinity chose you. And the whole Trinity chose you not because of something you are or did. And if that's true, then he's not going to let go of you because of something you are or do. He's got you. It is important for us to ground ourselves in this identity. Because if we don't, we'll live out of another one. Peter wants to root our identity in Jesus, who is the true and better exile. Jesus, though he did not deserve to be kicked out of his father's presence, left his father's presence, left what we know as left our promised land, and came to be an exile for us because of our sin. He knew the turning away of his father's face so that you and I could experience the father's face turning toward us in lovingly choosing us, setting us apart, cleansing us with his blood so that we might live for him. Father, would you, uh, would you take all these deep thoughts and truths and would you pound them into us, <laughs> root us in this grace that you, Father, you, Son, you, Spirit, work together to bring us into your family, to make us like Jesus so that we might turn then 
and be ones who would invite other exiles to join us on the journey home. And on that journey, Father, we get hungry and we get thirsty. We need the strength of Your grace. And You have provided it for us in this table. You have provided it for us in the body and blood of Jesus. You have spread a table before us in the presence of our enemies to strengthen us for the journey. And because You have shown Your faithfulness in Jesus, in His life and His death and His resurrection, we come this morning to this table and when we eat and drink, we are entrusting our souls to You and asking You for strength to do the good you've called us to do in the week to come. So we ask that you would set apart this bread and this cup from their normal everyday use, and would you make them be for us the nourishment of our souls? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.